My name is Josh Wilson. I'm one of the pastors of Storyline Church, and I have the privilege to come and bring God's word to you this morning. So I have a theory, all right? And this theory is that we, in a world that is saturated with bad news, I believe that we have this innate desire for good news, all right? So let me put it kind of like this. Um, A bad wreck will capture our attention But there is something about a child serving someone in need that just does something to your soul, doesn't it? If you watch a video, it captures your attention. But it doesn't just capture your attention. It does something internally inside of you. And you don't have to look very far to try to find evidence that we have this innate desire for this good news. All you have to do is turn to Jim Halpert of The Office. All right? In 2020... John Krasinski, Jim Halpert from the TV show The Office, launched a web series called Some Good News. And to say that this web series gained some traction would be maybe underselling what exactly happened. Because within two months, you saw that there were 72 million views of this web series and two and a half million people that that subscribed to the channel. In a world that makes living off of despair, we all want glimpses of hope, don't we? And that's exactly what you get in the passage that we're looking at this morning. As Pastor George read for us, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 15 verses, or chapter 15 verses 15 through 20. And the Apostle Paul is addressing a church that's struggling with some disbelief. And this disbelief that they're struggling with is that there will be a resurrection, a bodily resurrection from the dead. If they could kind of speak back to Paul, if we're just kind of anticipating what their voice is back to Paul, their voice might sound like this. Well, Paul, in our experience in this world as human beings, dead corpses don't come back to life. But in verses 12 through 19, the Apostle Paul, he begins to string along some hypotheticals. He tries to play their game a little bit. If that's true, Then let's tease this out and what this means for your faith if there's no resurrection. Essentially what he ends up doing is he argues for this Corinthian church not to cut off the branch that they sit on. Because basically here's his way that he argues with us about what happens through the resurrection. If there's no bodily resurrection, then that means that Jesus can't be alive. And if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then you have no hope. But praise be to God, we have verse 20, right? Verse 20 is this. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead and he's the first fruits of the many that will be saved. So look, here's what I want us to do this morning. I want to turn the negatives of this passage into positives. All right, because the truth of the matter is Jesus is alive. And that means that there is good news in this resurrection for you and me. And I want to highlight three of these for us this morning. There are three ways that we see the resurrection is good news for us. The first one we see in verse 14, it says this. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. So we associate this word vain with things that are shallow and meaningless, right? It's kind of like Nicolas Cage's acting career. It's just shallow and doesn't have a lot of depth to it. You know what I'm saying? 
All right, you're listening. You're listening. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. If you're a Nick Cage fan, I'm not, not, just making sure you're listening. Well, Paul says that if there's no resurrection and Jesus isn't alive, then our faith is in vain. I think if Paul were here, and if we were wrestling, and maybe some of us here this morning are in that place where, man, does the resurrection really happen? I think Paul would show up, and here's what Paul might say to us. Then what are we doing here? Why are we even here? I mean, if Jesus isn't alive, then Easter is just a holiday of pastels and bunnies and painted eggs. It's great for a Hallmark's pocketbook, but it adds no value to your life. And then on top of that, I think he might even go a little bit further and say, you don't even show up next week. Like, what's the purpose of this Christian belief? It's pointless. Because if Jesus isn't alive, here's the reality. That we worship a God that doesn't keep his promises. We celebrate a Savior that is empty of power. And we anticipate a, a life with God in a perfect place that will never come to fruition. And if that's the case, then why show up? But here's the good news of Easter is that tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. And so that means your faith is not in vain. But here's what I want you to see. Your faith has roots. It has roots. Well, so you're, we're a room of smart people, right? We know plants. We know what happens with plants. Whenever you put a plant into the ground, what happens? Those roots begin to go deep down into the soil, don't they? And then as those roots go deep down into the soil, it brings stability to this plant, right? But whenever you try to uproot a plant, what ends up happening? Especially one that's been in the ground for a while. So you try to bring up that plant. As you try to bring up that plant, it brings the earth with it, doesn't it? It brings part of that earth with it. It brings the dirt with it. And what does it do? It leaves a huge void in the ground. Well, the resurrection is the same way. The resurrection is rooted into human history. We see this in the passage just before the one that we're looking at this morning in verses three through seven. What happens in verses three through seven is Paul gives us a list of people that witnessed the resurrected Jesus in human history. He starts with Cephas, which is Peter, one of the apostles. And then he moves down to, I think, one of the most compelling things that you can find in all the Bible of the resurrection is that Jesus appeared to 500 people And Paul tells us that most of those people were still alive at his point in time. Essentially, what Paul is doing is saying, hey, here's my address book. If you want to go find somebody that saw this Jesus alive after he was dead in a grave, I have an address book. You can go sit down and have a meal with him. They can tell you about how they walked seven miles with this Jesus as he was resurrected from the grave. They can tell you about how they sat down and ate fish and bread with this Jesus just as if he was alive before he was dead. They have this resurrected Jesus that they, they, they can say, I put my fingers in the, the holes that were in his hands. I, I touched his side where there was a piercing in his side. And I saw this Jesus that was once dead, but is now alive. But it doesn't just stop there. See, we have this perspective where we get to look back even further from what Paul could experience. So we see that there's actually historians that have carried out what this faith in Christ, this resurrected Jesus looks like. You have Josephus, who is this Hebrew historian that makes reference to the resurrected Jesus. You also have a Roman a scholar, Suetonius, who makes reference to this resurrected Jesus. You have Pliny the Younger, who's a governor in the Roman government, who makes 
reference to this resurrected Jesus. You also have to account that from the very beginning, that there's no historical account of Christianity that is void of the resurrected Jesus. There's a scholar who puts it like this, no relic of a non-miraculous story exists speaking of the gospel account. You have Irenaeus, you have Ignatius, you have Polycarp, and the list could go on. You see, if you try to remove the resurrection, then you leave a massive hole in human history that you have to account for. There's one man who wrote this, CFD Mullen. If you have that many initials in front of your name, you have to be a legit, right? Here's what he said. If the coming into existence of the Nazarenes, a term used for Christians by early Jews, a phenomenon undeniably attested by the New Testament, look at this, rips a great hole in history, a hole the size and shape of the resurrection. What does the secular historian propose to stop it up with? The birth and rapid rise of the Christian church remain an unsolved enigma for any historian who refuses to take seriously the only explanation offered by the church itself. So look, faith in the resurrection of Jesus is no vanity. It's not shallow or meaningless. No, it has depth to it, doesn't it? It has roots. The tentacles of this belief sink deep down into human history, and if you try to uproot it, it leaves a gaping hole that must be accounted for. Christian, because Jesus is alive, your faith has roots. You can trust it. That's the first good news that we see of the resurrection in our passage this morning, but Paul doesn't stop there. He keeps going with the second hypothetical in verse 17, where we see the second piece of good news, and here's what it says. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, which we just spoke about, right? You are still in your sins. Paul ups the ante here, doesn't he? See, if Jesus isn't alive, not only is your faith worthless, but you're still in your sins. This means the cross didn't work. This means that your debt for sin is still out there and needs to be paid. It means that you are still at odds with the almighty living God. But Christian, because the tomb is empty, your sins are truly forgiven. Like we said, forgiveness is rooted in historical events. Jesus paid your penalty for sin on the cross as your substitute. And then Jesus rose from the grave, which means that the cross really did work. But look, if we stop there, we don't really get the full picture. All right? There's more to this story because you have to ask the question, if Jesus is alive, then what is he up to today? Right? Jesus is alive. He's not dead in a grave. Then what is he up to? Is he just seated at the right hand of God, his feet propped up, just waiting for the moment that he returns? That's not what Paul tells us. Paul tells us that Jesus is still working on your behalf. See, Paul puts all of this cross resurrection and then what Jesus is doing even now together in Romans chapter 8 verse 34 he says this who's the one who condemns Christ Jesus is the one who died the cross but even more has been raised the resurrection he also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us see Jesus doesn't just have his feet kicked up just waiting for the moment that The father tells him to return. No, 
what we see is that Jesus has been an advocate and he's been working for your forgiveness since well before you took a first breath here in this world. Jesus has been working on your behalf for forgiveness because Christ paid for your forgiveness on that cross. And then Christ secured your forgiveness by being resurrected from that grave, that tomb, the, the rock was rolled back. Jesus is not dead, but he's alive. But now Christ advocates for your forgiveness. He's interceding at the right hand of the Father on your behalf. Now the question is, what is Jesus arguing here, right? I think a lot of us, we would imagine as you would just any type of lawyer going into a courtroom, they're going to argue for leniency, right? Now here's the problem with that. If Jesus is just advocating for leniency, then it really doesn't bring a lot of assurance to us, does it? Causes a lot of doubt. When is this leniency going to dry up? You know what I mean? One pastor kind of illustrates it like this. We imagine Jesus going into the heavenly courtroom with a stack of case folders, one with your name marked on it. And he pulls out the folder with your name on it and says, okay, Father, it's Wilson again. All right? Can you forgive him just one more time? Just one more chance, God. I I promise you he's a pretty good guy, right? And by the way, Father, you kind of owe me. I went to earth just as you told me to, and I did everything that you instructed me to do, and so you owe me something, and so I'm calling on that, what you owe me, to bring forth forgiveness for this, this Wilson one more time, and deep down we wonder when we'll reach the end of that patience that God has for us. You're maybe on the 699th sin that you've had for the year, and you're wondering if that 700th rolls over just what the Father's response is going to be. The fear may sound like this, that the father would respond, nope, that's it. No more leniency for Wilson. Jesus, you may be in his corner, but I've had it enough. He is just, he's gone too far with this sin, and I cannot spell him any further. Now, Jesus, as our advocate, isn't in heaven pleading on behalf of God's leniency. He's actually appealing for justice. Jesus has satisfied all the claims against you. And as your advocate, Jesus isn't sitting in heaven just with his feet kicked up. He's your lawyer that's on your behalf advocating for your forgiveness because he's paid for it in full. He stands before the Father and says, no, 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 no. You can't bring this this issue against this Wilson again because his sin has been paid in full. You need to look back on that cross where I stood in his place, I knew what would happen. I knew exactly what was going on in this man's life. I knew exactly everything that had happened before. I knew everything that was going on in his life in the moment. I knew every sin that was going to happen in the future. And I paid for it all. Past, present, and future. And so, Father, you may not come to my son, Wilson, and say that this sin has taken him too far because it is paid in full. You see, Christian... Because Jesus is alive, it means that he is your advocate, which means that you can have full, complete confidence that your sins are truly forgiven. It's not just something that happened in the past, but Jesus is alive and is seated at the right hand of God, and he's interceding for you. Good news of the resurrection, amen? Amen. But Paul doesn't stop there. He tells us that the good news of the resurrection is that our faith, it has roots, it has depth, it's meaning to it. 
that because Jesus is alive, that we can be confident that our sins are truly forgiven. But thirdly, we see that we have an unquenchable joy. In verse 19, Paul says this, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. See, Paul closes out his sequence of hypotheticals with this word pity, right? If we've trusted in an unrisen savior, our faith is useless, we're still in our sins, and we deserve to be pitied more than any other person here in this world. Have you ever been pitied before? It's a miserable experience, isn't it? So I ran track in high school, in one of the biggest races of my life at the Texas Relays, I cramped up and I got our team disqualified. And so we're away from our hometown on this trip and the meet spans over multiple days and my team pitied me for the entire trip. Josh, it's okay. It's, it's okay, Josh. We'll, we'll get this back for you. Oh my gosh, it was, I hated every moment of that trip. There's few things worse than being pitied. It is a miserable experience. But here's the good news of the resurrection is that we don't worship a dead corpse. We, re- we worship a resurrected savior. And that means that there are no miserable people that trust in Jesus. Rather, we have an unquenchable, incurable joy. It's a joy that the circumstances of this life can never dictate. There's a pastor by the name of Alistair Begg. He shares about this note that he got after a conference one year, and he's kept it throughout the years. And here's what he says. Well, here's what was said in that letter. Dear Pastor Begg, a friend was suffering through brain cancer and its treatments. His relationship with Jesus was such that the nurse on duty wrote as a critical comment on his chart, Mr. X, this man that was suffering, is inappropriately joyful. Since then, says the writer of the note, it has become one of my goals to be inappropriately joyful. This is what we see in the life of Paul too, isn't it? Paul is one of those inappropriately joyful people. He was a man who endured much, experienced imprisonment, experienced persecution, beatings, rejection, threats. Yet in the midst of all of it, Paul was unwaveringly joyful. And so you have to ask the question, why? Right? Like how? How in the world does this Paul who experienced so much hardship remain joyful in the midst of difficult circumstances? Well, you get the answer for that in the book of Philippians. Philippians, out of all the books of the New Testament, marks the idea of joy more than every other book except Luke, which has 20 more chapters. And in that book, in Philippians 3.10, he says this, my goal is to know him, and Christian, look at this, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. How does Paul remain joyful? Well, it's the resurrection. The resurrection was Paul's practice and perspective 
throughout his life. And it did not matter the circumstances that came his way because he had an unquenchable joy. You see, Paul looked at the consequences of this life and his experience and he said, I'm going to live my future now. I'm not going to wait for this impending resurrection, but I believe that God has given me life here and now. And so I'm going to live my future in the present. And so what you see throughout the book, the letters that Paul writes, is he would constantly kind of put these two different tables before you. He'd give you these two different lists. And one of the ways that he described those lists is that he was putting off the old self, but then putting on the new self. It's almost as if he was looking at his former life as a set of old, dirty clothes that he was changing out of, and then he was going to put on these resurrection clothes that were going to be his for eternity when Jesus came back again, but he said, I'm going to live my future here and now. And so what he said is he was going to put aside things like lying and deceit and lust and envy and jealousy. He was putting off these things and in its place, he was going to put on the life of the resurrection. It was like he was saying, I'm going to put on love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, as if it's a t-shirt that I'm putting on over my head and a leg that I'm putting on, my pants that I'm putting on one leg at a time because I'm going to live my future here and now. You see, we have the Holy Spirit if you've trusted in Jesus and this Holy Spirit makes you alive internally and then gives you the strength and power to live the resurrection life here and now. Paul, no matter what circumstances came his way, was unwaveringly joyful because he said, I'm going to live my future in the present. I'm going to live the resurrection here and now. But not only was it just a practice that he had, it was also a perspective. Paul lived with the perspective of eternity. In verse 11, we see that he says, I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. I came across a story this week as I was um, studying, and there was a story about these teachers that were serving some underprivileged kids, and these kids were about to graduate. And so these teachers were trying to help them think through, how do I give these students hope to continue in their studies even whenever things get hard? And so they decided, I mean, they're teachers, they don't have a lot of money, and so they tried to figure out, okay, what's a, what's a little gift that I can give that will hopefully set their gaze moving forward beyond the hardships that are going to come? And so they decided to use a Huey Lewis quote and cri- cri- make some glasses that would have the quote that was on the arms of the glasses. And the, future sa- or the, the quote says this, my future is so bright, I've got to wear shades. <laughs> it's as if Paul... It's saying, I have a completely different perspective on how I live this life. See, I can look at the hardships and I can look at the difficulties of this life that come my way, but I have a completely different lens because I live with eternity in mind, not just the present. See, Paul, instead of glancing at eternity, would set his gaze on eternity, his glance would only be on those hardships in this life. His gaze was forever fixed on that resurrection that he knew was going to happen whenever this living Jesus came back one day. And so look, the consequence of all of this, the result, is that Paul experienced this incurable, unquenchable joy 
because it was his practice that he lived the resurrection here and now, but it was also his perspective that he lived with the hope of the resurrection that was going to come one day. We've talked a lot about the resurrection, right? One of my favorite pastors is uh, in New York City. He's preached there for multiple years. And so he's preached many different Easter's. And so here's what he says about just about every single Easter that he's preached. He says this, each year at Easter, I get to preach on the resurrection. And in my sermon, I always say to my skeptical friends that even if they can't believe in the resurrection, they should want it to be true. As we work through the passage this morning, here's where I hope you're setting. Even if you're like these Corinthians that struggle with the idea of the resurrection, my hope is what we've worked through leaves you with this deep down desire that even if it's hard to believe, that you want it to be true. And here's what I want to ask of you this morning. I want to ask that you not stop with just wanting it to be true, but that you would believe it to be true. Jesus is alive. Christian, your faith has roots. There's depth to it. When life storms come and hit you, you have roots that are sucked deep down that you can trust that this resurrection truly has happened. That your sins truly are forgiven and that you have a Savior who's alive and seated at the right hand of God and is advocating on your behalf. And that you have an unquenchable joy. That you can stare the hardships of this life in its eyes and say, I will not be deterred because I have the practice that I live my future now. And I have a perspective of this eternity of living with the God that's going to come back for me in a resurrected body because my Jesus has a resurrected body. Christian belief. Non-Christian belief. We're going to give you a moment to respond here in a second. We're going to have uh, Pastor George is going to come and he's going to lead us in communion. We're also going to have a couple of songs, but we're going to have people that are in the back. If you need prayer this morning, we'd love for you to respond and come back for prayer. If you're ready to take a step to believe in this resurrected Jesus and place your hope and faith in him, we're going to ask that you would come back to the back. But may we all move forward in belief this morning. Let's pray.